Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, The Counterfeit and the Genuine. So turning your Bibles to the book of Galatians as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We all know about counterfeit money, and I know that the first thing that we think about when we think about counterfeit money, well, it's made to look like the real thing, and it's intended to fool the person who receives it into thinking it's real. And yeah, this is true about counterfeit money. But more technically, counterfeit money is money that lacks authority. So what does that mean? Well, take a bill out of your wallet or purse, and let's say it's a $20 bill. And that means that you can take that bill to a grocery store, for instance. You could purchase something. Perhaps it's, you know, apples in a jug of milk, and you hand the cashier the bill, and you might get some change plus the apples and the milk. And at the outset, that bill doesn't equal the worth of the apples and the milk because that small amount of paper and the ink on it, it's not worth much at all. But of course, we know that the federal government backs that piece of paper or it lends its authority to it. And counterfeit money is a bill that doesn't have the authority of government. You know, in the same way, a false gospel or a counterfeit gospel also, while it does fool people, I mean, that's only one issue. The real issue is that a counterfeit gospel lacks the authority of Christ. It's worthless because Christ doesn't honor it and he doesn't back it. See, the question is not how many people believe it or how fervently a skillful preacher preaches it or how popular it becomes in culture. The question is, does it come with the backing of Jesus? And if not, it's worthless. So I've decided at the end of our study of Paul's first missionary journey and the subsequent Council of Jerusalem that followed to do a brief survey of the book of Galatians because in my view, this book expresses the heart of and the authenticity of the gospel that was preached to both Jews and Gentiles. And at the outset, I have a confession to make, so I hope you're ready. There's a great deal of disagreement as to when the book was written and even to whom exactly it was written. Now, obviously, the book was written to the Galatians, and you find that out at the very beginning of the book. Verse 2 says, to the churches of Galatia. Well, that's the simple part, but now it gets a bit technical. The thing that scholars discuss, and if you're all interested in this, is to which Galatians Paul is actually writing. And there are those who argue that Paul is writing to Celtic people who lived in what was sometimes referred to as Northern Galatia. And that was a group of people who lived in what's now, you know, the northern part of Turkey. But I doubt this because as Luke describes Paul's missionary journeys, he really doesn't speak about Paul ministering there at all. Now, it is true that Luke mentions Galatia very briefly during the third missionary journey of Paul, and you're going to find that in Acts 18.23, which says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Perga, strengthening all the disciples. But there's no indication that he's actually speaking about North Galatia at all. Rather, you know, it's South Galatia where, you know, it's well known that he did the work of his first missionary journey. You know, for other reasons as well, I think it's highly unlikely to connect the Galatian letter to some journey dealing, you know, with church planting up north when the Bible has really no record of that. I haven't, I think, rightly connected the events of Acts 
13 to 15 with the writing of the book of Galatians. Now, humor me for just a little bit longer, will you? I know that Paul does not mention the Council of Jerusalem by name in the book of Galatians. And he doesn't mention the letter that was sent out by the Council of Jerusalem either, you know, to be read in Syrian Antioch and the churches that Paul and Barnabas have begun. And critics say, well, that silence is telling. They mean the silence of mentioning the Council of Jerusalem in Galatians is telling. See, if Galatians is about the decision that was made in Jerusalem, you know, why then wouldn't Paul speak of it and mention it by name? And so, since he doesn't mention it, the critics say, well, it must be about something else. Uh, that's an argument from silence. And besides, I think Paul does mention the Council of Jerusalem, although not specifically by name. In Galatians 2 verse 1, he writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I hope you see that going to Jerusalem with Barnabas and taking Titus in tow, that corresponds perfectly with Acts 15 verse 2, which says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And then in Galatians 2, Paul speaks about how when he went to Jerusalem, the discussion was, whether or not he had been running in vain. So what does that mean? Well, he makes it clear. Are the Gentile converts to Christ saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or do they need to add, you know, circumcision and kosher laws and other ceremonial laws to their faith in order to be saved? I mean, is it faith alone or is it faith plus the law? Which is it? And that was exactly what was discussed in the Council of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Paul writes to the believers of the churches that he and Barnabas have begun, you know, in the Galatian cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Indeed, what is discussed in Acts 15, that is, at the Council of Jerusalem, is exactly what's discussed in Galatians. It's the same thing. And for all these reasons and more, I think we can safely say that Acts 15 corresponds perfectly with what we find in the book of Galatians. And so I think it to be obvious that Galatians was written to the churches in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, and Derbe, after Paul and Barnabas had been there and after they had established churches there. Well, that's only half the drama. What is the book of Galatians all about? Well, have a look at Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9, and Paul dives right in. He calls out the churches that he's begun. Listen to what he says. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And you see, that's what I've been saying about the counterfeit. After Paul and Barnabas had gone to these churches and presented to them a gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, now that this gospel was one they had embraced, but we also saw at least... You know, that's how it was in Pisidian Antioch and in Iconium and Lystra. There was a considerable backlash from the synagogues. 
And as we've also seen, there were converted Pharisees who said, no, that's not the gospel. See, unless the Gentile males are circumcised, they can't be cleansed from their sins. Luke tells us that when that happened, Paul and Barnabas ended up in a, well, a knockout, drag out fight over that very issue. And so what happened is that in Pisidian Antioch, the synagogue organized persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the city. And then Iconium, again, the Jewish synagogue was involved to either mistreat them or to physically rough them up or even to stone them to death. And so, again, they're driven out of that city. And then in Lystra, the synagogue again became involved. Indeed, synagogues from Antioch and Iconium joined forces. They showed up in Lystra and actually succeeded in stoning Paul, and they left him for dead. But he had only been knocked out, and so suffering from what I believe must have been a concussion and other severe injuries, Paul stumbled forward to the city of Derby. But all of this had happened, and yet Paul and Barnabas had managed to plant true and authentic and believing gospel-centered churches in spite of such enormous difficulties. See, it's quite possible that the words of Galatians 4, 13 to 14, were directed specifically to the church in Derby. See, Paul says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. See, Paul at that time in Derby was still suffering terribly from the effects of having been stoned. And furthermore, that would also make sense of the very next verse in the letter. See, in Galatians 4.15, he says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. See, I think the eye problem that Paul was suffering from came as a result of a concussion. You know, common symptoms of that include frequent headaches, nausea, ringing of the ears, vomiting, and blurry vision. And so his eyesight problem would have been pronounced as he attempted to present the gospel in Derby. And then Galatians 6:17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Well, the marks of Jesus was the persecution that he endured that left a lasting scar probably in his face. I guess what I'm saying is that if you read Galatians alongside of Acts 13 to 15, it makes sense. That's because that's when the book was written. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at one 800 Let's get back to Paul's concern for the Galatian Christians. You remember that Paul is saying that he's astonished. 
The Council of Jerusalem has ended. Paul's position was vindicated there. He's now back in Syrian Antioch, and he and Barnabas are again teaching the church there. But then Paul hears word from the churches that he and Barnabas had fought for and labored over and suffered so much to bring into being. I'm astonished, says Paul, how quickly you have deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ. So what's he speaking about? Well, the synagogue had been saying, look, the real problem with Paul is not that he proclaims Jesus as the Messiah and says that he rose from the dead. Listen, that's not the problem. The real problem is that he has no respect for the law. Look, he doesn't insist that the new Gentile believers be circumcised and adhere to the ceremonial regulations of the law, which include kosher foods. Look at Galatians 4, 10, and 11. Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Well, the days, months, and seasons that Paul's referring to, that's observance of all the Jewish feast days, the high and holy days. That, said the Judaizers, is what the Gentiles must do. And Paul says, look, if that's what you're doing, you're deserting the gospel. Indeed, Paul becomes even more plain in Galatians 5, 2-4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You see, Paul, nor the council of Jerusalem, thought that these matters were minor or that they were simply a difference of opinion. This was at the heart of the Christian gospel, what it meant to be forgiven or whether you'd received a counterfeit gospel. And so because this matter is so important, Paul begins his letter to the Galatian Christians by expressing both shock and outrage. I'm astonished, he says. I hear that you're not gradually, but quickly turning to a different gospel. And then he stops himself in mid-sentence. He realizes by putting matters this way that he might be misunderstood by the Galatians. And so he adds, not that there is another one. See, that's like saying, look, if someone gives you another $20 bill authorized by the government, and then he stops himself and he clarifies, not that there is another $20 bill authorized by the government. That's to say, look, there are counterfeit gospels, sure enough, but there's only one genuine one. That's the one you're turning from. And then Paul goes one step further, a step that he will have to explain, well, from Galatians 1 verse 11, all the way through to chapter 2 verse 14. Paul will say, look, I know what some of you have thought. See, on the one hand, there's the gospel that Paul preaches. And of course, that's also the gospel that the leaders of the church of Jerusalem are preaching. But on the other hand, well, there's the gospel that these Christian Pharisees are preaching. And if we adopt the gospel of the Christian Pharisees, well, we won't have all the problems that we've had before. I mean, the problems with the angry people from the synagogue. If we only accept that gospel, perhaps our persecution problems will go away. And so they were no doubt tempted to accept the Judaizers' amended gospel. We're saved by grace through faith plus circumcision and plus the law. Why not just combine all those elements? Then the persecution will go away. And to that, Paul clarifies. There is, he says, only one authentic gospel, and it doesn't much matter If I suddenly changed my mind, says Paul, and started preaching the very same gospel the Pharisees are preaching, if I did that, yeah, you'd be confused to be sure, but something else would happen. I myself, Paul says, would be under God's curse. And if Peter did it, 
he'd be under God's curse as well, and for that matter, anyone else. So let's stop and make application, shall we? You know, years ago, I made a comment in a public setting that a certain preacher was not preaching the true and authentic gospel. I pointed out what he had changed, and I warned the people in that setting about being careful not to accept his gospel. Well, after the meeting, a woman approached me. She was very upset. How dare you, she said, say those things about that man. And I responded and said, well, how dare you say those things about the gospel? To throw the true gospel into the trash because you happen to like that one particular preacher. How quickly you would desert him who called you just because you like that one man. Don't you see that's the issue? If I, John Newfeld, can no longer agree that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, if I say something other than that, I'm accursed, and so is anyone else who does that. And with that, Galatians 1, 11 to chapter 2, verse 14, Paul deals with that. In fact, he even goes so far as to say that at one point, the great Peter himself showed up in Antioch and contradicted the gospel. So how did that happen? Well, Peter used to have breakfast meetings with Gentile Christians. I think they had bacon and eggs, non-kosher. But when so-called Christian Pharisees showed up out of fear for them and because he was intimidated by them, he didn't show up for those breakfast meetings anymore. And in Galatians 2 verse 11, Paul says, Peter was condemned. And in chapter 2 verse 14, he says, he was out of step with the gospel. That is, if you say it's grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, then you must identify with all others who say the same thing. Gentile Christians are in, even if they're uncircumcised, pork-eating Christians who never celebrate the festivals of Israel. It doesn't matter. They're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And in the rest of Galatians, Paul defends that gospel. Look how he begins his defense in Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, everything here is bound up in that one word, justified. So to be justified is to be counted righteous. That is to say, to be justified means that we'll stand before God as righteous people and not be weighed down by any sins at all. Indeed, unless we stand before God spotless and sinless and totally absolved of all wrongdoing, well, we're going to go into eternal torment. Only the righteous go to heaven. And so again, how will any person be declared righteous in God's sight? That's the question, isn't it? In fact, of all the questions that human beings have ever asked themselves, this one question, it's the most important question of all. See, did you know that the majority of people actually think they're going to heaven even though they have not been justified? They have sins, they're not cleansed. They've done wrongs that have not been righted. They've not glorified God nor given thanks to him as they should, and instead they've poured contempt on the glory of God, and they do this, and all the while they think, well, we must be going to heaven. They think nothing of the justice of God. They're deluded. And so the greatest question is this, how can I be absolved of my sin and be made righteous? And Paul says, listen, that's at the heart of the gospel. No human being will be justified by keeping the works or the commands of the law. If you think that by law keeping or by doing your best or by being a better kind of person, 
or by being circumcised or by going to church every week or by treating people kindly or by being generous with your money or by volunteering a lot or by caring for the poor or by eating kosher or by the work that you do. If you think that justifies you, you're deluded. You've accepted a counterfeit currency, a counterfeit gospel. And here in Galatians is the gospel of Jesus in a nutshell. Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That is, we're confident, trusting that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that it was there that the sin question was dealt with. It is never faith plus law keeping. It's always faith alone. Nothing can be added to that. I know some of you get nervous when you hear this. You know, if that's what you believe, won't that inspire people to live immoral and selfish lives, saying that I'm saved by faith while they carry on in immoral behavior? And listen to Paul's answer to that. It's in the very next verse that we've been reading, verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, says Paul. That is to say, the entire gospel of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, that gospel is not, let me say it again, that gospel is not a servant of sin. Indeed, Paul will say that that kind of gospel, and he says in Galatians 5, and 23, that gospel produces fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happens. And that's why Paul demanded that we never add anything to grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. And because of that, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. It's the gospel that makes us one. John, a great series. Thank you so much. Uh, Let me ask you this final question, though. Why do you think the church has a, a propensity towards a faith plus religion because it it soothes our ego it tells us i contribute something as well to my salvation it's not all of god and this is this is the problem it's pride it's arrogance before god and we need to renounce it in the name of jesus so that we embrace what is genuinely true <laughs> and let me say it one more time you know we are saved by grace through faith by christ alone Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future. So call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. 
888-888-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.